We're going to continue in the book of Nehemiah. Uh, if you need a copy of the scriptures, raise your hand and Alex will bring one to you. If you have your Bibles, open it to Nehemiah chapter 8. And we'll continue. It's been a few weeks since we've been in Nehemiah. Michael, a couple of weeks ago, spoke about his lack of dryer. Just want you guys to know my 67 Corvette convertible broke down. <laughs> See what happens. Uh, just kidding. And last week we talked a little bit about our, our return from Haiti and some of the things that happened there. But as we continue in the book of Nehemiah, remember that Israel has been dispersed for a number of years. They had been conquered by the Babylonians, the Persians, and Nehemiah was a cupbearer for King Artaxerxes, and he heard that the city of Jerusalem was in ruins. The walls were broken down, the gates were burned with fire, that the people were scattered and in danger, in peril, because there was no city wall protecting them. And so he was impressed and it moved him so much that he stepped out and in spite of his fear, asked the king if he could take a leave and not only did he get the leave of absence to go and work on the wall, but he also got materials and an escort and it says that God's hand was upon him. We talked about the need to step into those areas that are uncomfortable, that we maybe even fear, that that's the point many times, that point of sacrifice where God does meet us and do a work within our lives. We also saw that as the work continued, there was opposition and we shouldn't expect life to go by smoothly when we're trying to, to make a difference in the world around us, that there is indeed going to be opposition. And in the last few chapters that we spoke about, in, in chapter 5 and in 6, or actually 4 and 5, we saw that there was opposition from Sanballat and Tobiah from without. And the opposition that came from without actually took their strength, that they were so much afraid that it took the strength out of them and that Nehemiah had to rally them together and push forward. And we saw that in chapter 5 that there was opposition from their own brothers and the opposition that came and took their strength from out was not even close to the opposition that came from their own brothers that took their very lives, the lives of their children into servitude that Nehemiah challenged the people and said, you guys, you can't do this. This is wrong. And we spoke about how important it is for us to deal correctly with one another as the family of God and how there has been so much harm done in the name of Christianity that has marred the name of Christ. And I'm not going to go through all of chapter 6 or 7. Chapter 6 talks a lot about uh, some more opposition that took place with Sam Ballot and Tobiah. And chapter 7, 
lists a bunch of the names of the people who came back. But I do want to look at chapter 6, verses 15 and 16 as we lead into chapter 8. Because in these verses it says, So the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul in 52 days. So first of all, as we get ready to go into chapter 8, recognize that the entire work that took place took place in only 52 days. That's incredible. It makes you wonder, why didn't it get taken care of sooner? Why did they wait so long for this wall to be completed? Well, it took so long because there was no one stepping into this role to unite them, and that was Nehemiah. And I can't overemphasize the importance that you play in the life of someone. The need there is for you to step into a role that makes a difference. If Nehemiah didn't step into this role, the walls would not have been built. When he did and he gathered the people, in only 52 days, they had the walls completed. Verse 16, it says, when all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized that the work had been done with the help of our God. So we see the completion of the wall and we see that where early on Nehemiah was afraid of the king and what he would do when he asked for that time off, afraid for his life, but he pushed forward in spite of his fear. We saw that the people were afraid because of the threats that were put upon them from their enemies, and they pushed on and completed the work. And because of their perseverance and them seeing this through, now the enemy is afraid, and they've lost their confidence. And isn't that where we want to get to? We want to get to that place where our fears are behind us, and those who are opposing us are the ones that need to be afraid. It's a great movie. It just seems like something that would, that's what we want to see take place in these things. And, and in chapter 8, as we're going to start reading, we're going to see that as the people have now come together, they're going to start to worship and to celebrate. And as we start chapter 8, I want to ask you this, kind of get a little participation. When I say the word holy... What emotions come to mind? What, what words come to mind when you hear the word holy? Shout it out. Anyone? What? God? Fear? Jesus? Reverence? Set apart? Security? What was that? Affliction? Affection. Perfection. I gotcha. Okay. My ear lacks perfection. How about the word joy? Because we're going to see that Nehemiah connects the word holy with the word joy. And for some reason, we seldom go there in that place. But let's start at verse 1, chapter 8 in the book of Nehemiah. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns. All the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. 
So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Ezra, the teacher of the law, stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. Beside him on his right stood this guy and these other people and a bunch of them. And then verse 5, Ezra opened the book and all the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. Then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The Levites, Jeshua, Benai, Sherebiah, these other people, instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people understood what was being read. Then Nehemiah, the governor, Ezra, the priest, and the teachers of the law and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Nehemiah said, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some, of those, send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites calmed all the people, saying, be still, for this is a holy day. Do not grieve. Let's stop there. An interesting series of events takes place in these verses. We see the people reading and understanding the law, and it brings mourning that literally will turn into dancing. As they go back and they get the food and they have a celebration, the Feast of Tabernacles, and for seven days they have a party with great food, wine, enjoying the time together. But what happened? Why did they start crying? And then why were they encouraged to not grieve? Have you ever been ignorant of something? You just didn't know. And then later on, you you became aware of circumstances that caused you to grieve. Where you were ignorant before, that whole saying, ignorant is bliss, kind of plays into effect where you were just ignorant, you didn't know what was going on, and then all of a sudden you became aware and your ignorance was put aside and now you were sorry for what you knew. I remember years ago, when I was a wee lad, we went to the circus. And this wasn't the circus that's just at the, you know, parking lot circus. This was the Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus. It took place at the sports arena. You guys remember the sports arena downtown LA? The ice capades used to take place there too. Uh, anyway... <laughs> This was the circus, and my parents took me to the circus, and we went, and the whole circus was going on, but what I remember was after the circus, we came out, and they were selling all the stuff. And one of the things that they were selling was a chameleon, a live lizard. 
and the guy had pinned to his shirt a lizard. And it had like this collar around its neck and it was attached to his shirt. And so it was kind of the color of the guy's shirt. And I wanted a chameleon. I want this lizard. It's the coolest thing ever. Its eyes are weird and it turns colors. I want this lizard. So my parents bought me the lizard because I was spoiled. I took the lizard home and I put it in the crate. And in, with the lizard, they gave you a box of food. And so I took the lizard and I put it in this little crate and I took this box of food. And I opened up the box and it just looked like sawdust. I guess that's what lizards eat. And so I started sprinkling the sawdust in, in the cage and, and didn't eat the sawdust. I was like, I don't know what's wrong with this lizard. It didn't turn colors, it didn't do anything. It just sat there. And I don't know how much time went by, but eventually my lizard died. I was like, what a rip. <laughs> lizard died. And so I, you know, taking out the lizard and it's all stiff and, you know, I don't know what I did. I think I threw it away. And, and then I was going to dump out all the stuff. And as I started dumping out the sawdust, I found in the box of sawdust, there were these worms that I was supposed to be feeding the lizard. Now I felt bad. You see, before I didn't know there were worms, I, I, had, I thought the lizard was just a ripoff and it died. Then I realized I starved my lizard to death. I killed it. I know, it's terrible. I don't think they sold lizards very long after that. They probably were more than one, hopefully. Well, not hopefully. Anyway, this awareness of what I had done wrong caused me to feel sad for a few hours anyway until I went outside to play, because I was a kid, a wee little lad. But the knowledge came, and with the knowledge came the understanding that I had blown it. I had killed my lizard. I had starved it. There was food there. All I had to do was give it food, and I could have had a lizard for a little bit longer, and then I don't know what would happen if I ran out of worms. I guess I would have had to find more worms. But the knowledge came and then came the grief because I was aware that I wasn't, that I was responsible for what had happened, the wrong that had been done. If I never would have known, I wouldn't have felt guilty. They listened to the law and there came guilt. They listened to the words that were being spoken by Ezra, and then some of the Levites interpreted, and it kind of, they paraphrased what was being said. Probably because it was being read in Hebrew, and some of them spoke in different languages, so they had to be interpreted in a different language so that they could understand it. And let me just take this time to say, if you have a copy of the Scriptures that's hard for you to understand, get one that's easy. There are good translations out there that are easy to understand. Don't get stuck on, well, no, I have to stay close to the original as possible. It's being translated. It's not going to be the original. Who cares if it's close to the original if you don't understand it? Get a Bible that you understand so you can read it and get something from it. I'm using the New International Version, the New Translation. There's a lot, New Living Translations. And other, there's a lot of good translations out there. 
So if you've got the old King James and you feel like you're at a Shakespeare festival, get a new translation. They made it clear for them to understand. And as they were telling them these things, they heard the things and they realized they became responsible. The truth came out of their circumstances. And then they were aware of the guilt that was there. They listened and they felt guilt for a life that was being poorly lived. Have you ever been there? Have you ever become aware that you've made some mistakes and you're living a life that is poorly lived? I can raise both hands on that one. There's so many times where I can look at my life and say, these choices have caused so many problems. The consequences because I didn't live well. And as they're hearing the law, they're becoming aware of how poorly they're living. And sometimes we'd rather just be ignorant and live poorly, that is, until things really go bad, like they get taken captive. And as they're reading the law, you you have to imagine some of the things that they heard. And if you can, turn to Exodus chapter 20. There's no doubt part of what they heard and read in the law might have been through the book of Exodus. I mean, they were there for hours reading. And in Exodus 20, starting at verse 1, it says, And God spoke all these words. And so imagine you're there. You, you've just rejoiced. The, the walls are built. You've been in captivity. For 50 years, you've been dispersed. And now you're finally here at home and you start hearing the things that God has said to you and to the people that belong to the nation of Israel. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall make for yourself. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sins of their parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations to those who love me and keep my commandments." And you hear in the background, someone starts weeping. What have I been doing? I've been in the land that's full of idolatry and I've been bowing down to idols. And and now I'm hearing that God is going to punish the children and the generations and he will not have any idols before him. That was me. And so someone is there and you hear weeping in the background as they realize that was me. Verse 7, he goes, You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. And you hear more weeping. Remember the Sabbath day to keep keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and on the do all your work, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, 
nor your animals, nor any foreign res- foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. And people are aware, I haven't been keeping it holy. I've been ignoring the Sabbath day. We've all just been working whenever we want. And so you hear more weeping. Honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God has given you. They weren't living in the land for 50 years. They were scattered. And they hear these words and they realize, we left the truth of God and it brought terrible consequences. It brought us into bondage, into captivity. It goes on, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not cover your neighbor's house. You shall not cover your neighbor's, covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant or his ox, donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. And the people are hearing the law and they're hearing the truths of God and it's breaking their heart because they are becoming aware of how far they have fallen. They are becoming aware of the mistakes that they have made. They have been outcast. And they come to the realization that the reason they have been outcast from their homes for the last 50 years, it's their own fault. They just opened up and now they found the worm that's in the box and they realize this is our fault. And the realization of the pain that has befallen them causes them to weep. It causes them to cry. You know, sometimes it takes difficult circumstances to open our eyes. There's a saying that people won't change until the pain of remaining the same exceeds the pain of the change. People don't want to change until it gets too difficult, until the slavery is oppressing them until there's sickness in their body, until they find themselves out on the street, until the circumstances change and it's unbearable and all of a sudden they say, oh God, what have I done? Where am I? Because the pain forces them to want to change. And the people are now aware of the pain that they've been living in. And there is a mourning. There is a grieving. There is a desire to want to change. We could go around the room and hear story after story of how pain has changed our lives of how circumstances have pushed us to a place of change. Some people just have to learn the hard way. And we find ourselves many times in a place where we're being pressed and pressed where we give up and we say, I can't take any more. I need to change. And the people hear what they're supposed to be, where they're supposed to go, 
and they desire to change. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Paul talks about how this change takes place and how there is a sorrow that brings about a change. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, starting at verse 10, he says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you? What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves? What indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concerns, what readiness to see justice done? Don't you see that the sorrow that this awareness causes is pushing you to the right direction? What, what does it look like when a, a person changes, when a person realizes that they are in bondage to the drugs, the alcohol, to the addictions, when they realize that they're living a life that is selfish, self-centered, and that it is killing them? What does it look like when that change happens? The first things that happens is they say, oh my God, how did I get here? I don't want to be here. There is a sorrow that overtakes the soul, that pushes the soul to cry out. It's a godly sorrow that makes a person want to change. It's not a sorry, a sorrow that's just like, oh man, I hate the way things are. I hate that I got busted. I hate this. It's a sorrow that says, I hate who I am. There's a sickness in me that I can't stand. And I want to make a change. And, and you see, Nehemiah is helping them to, to move to this place. It, it first began with a reg recognition. Do you see where you're wrong? Oh, the law is telling me that I was supposed to not give in to any graven images, but I did. The law tells me that I'm supposed to do these things. I didn't do it. Or maybe it's Christ that says I'm to seek first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness. And I haven't been. I'm supposed to love the Lord God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I haven't been. And there's a recognition that takes place. And with that recognition, there comes a sorrow. But that sorrow is a transition. It's not meant for you to camp there. It's meant for you to be aware so that you could move forward. And you see, Nehemiah is helping them to turn from a condemnation to a liberation. This isn't a condemnation of your life, of what has happened in the past. What this is, is freeing you to a future that lies ahead. This isn't you blew it, it's over. This is, that's the wrong way, but the right way is in front of you. You can now make choices that are going to be liberating, that won't bring you into bondage. You can now live a life that is freeing. You can now live a life that is empowered by the love and grace of God. You can now live a life that will bring unity to your family, will bring wholeness to your soul. You can live a life that is divine, ordained by God because you were created in his image. And so the morning comes, but it doesn't stay. 
It's there because of the recognition, but then the recognition takes our eyes and moves it forward. Some of you are living in condemnation of your past. You've made mistakes, and they've cost you dearly. And it's overwhelming. And it rehearses over and over and over in your mind. A lot of us have those kinds of things. And they haunt us. What Nehemiah did is what I desire to do here this morning. I want to tell you, stop mourning. Do you see that this place of recognition, this understanding of the mistake that you made is a step to the life you can now live? The holiness of God is to lead you to a place where his joy is your strength. It's a transition. Take the sorrow and turn it into rejoicing. Take the mourning and turn it into dancing. Get to the place where you see, this is where I am, but this is my future. You know, as we were rehearsing the, the music, and that last song that we sang, you know, your love never fails, it never gives up, it never runs out on me. I remember when I heard that song, I remember telling Danny, we got to do this song, man. I heard the song, the song, got to do it. I love this song. And as we started practicing, I was actually thinking of Danny. Next Friday, Danny's scheduled to have surgery. They're going to amputate the top part of his finger. You know, Danny texted me. He said, bummed, and he put a sad face. But I know that text didn't cover what was going on inside of him. I, I can only imagine how... Just horrific that idea is I'm going to lose part of my finger. I play guitar. How, how is that going to work out? And he's already looking on YouTube videos how you can do that. You know, he's, he's, he's going to work it out somehow. You see, and he's in a place of, oh, no, what's going to happen? But then there's the realization that your love never fails. It never gives up. It never runs out on me. My life is more than the tip of my finger. And so those things echo. I know he loves that song now. He's like, oh, man, and I know it means a lot to him right now, especially right now. Why? Because it's giving him a vision of what is ahead, and the vision ahead isn't what he's locked into now. The vision ahead is that God is still at work doing something good, freeing, liberating in his life. What about you? What is holding you? What are you in bondage to? What is the chain that you're, you're carrying with you? Do you see that God wants to take it away and he has a life for you to live that is holy, that is filled with his joy, that it's something good, it's something good for you so that you can have a healthy life, so you can have a, a good marriage, so you can have a good relationship with your kids, so you can honor God with your life. that you can be 
whole. That you can be free from the things that are dragging you down. That you can make wise decisions in how you move forward in your future. That's what this illumination produces. That's what this awareness is bringing them. That's why Nehemiah says, stop weeping. Don't you see? This is a good thing. You have now been made aware of the truth. That's a great thing. When the truth is understood and you take hold of it, it's a good thing. It's a great thing. And the future ahead of you is wonderful. Turn to James. Actually, I'll just read it. James chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. James says, Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. I'm afraid that there's some of us, before we can get to that place of joy, we need to get to the place where we do weep. There might be some of you here who are just like, I haven't hit bottom yet. I'm still going to go on the way I'm going. I don't want to change. I, I want to do things my way. I'm not sold on, on this Jesus thing, this living for God thing. I'm not sure what it looks like, but I don't think I want it. And, and I can't convince you to, to take it. That has to be your decision. You have to see that God has a good plan for your life. If God created you, he knows how to, to create you right. He knows what's best for you. But how, how long will you have to fall before you weep, before you mourn, before you wail? See, some of us need to get to that place. Karina and I, on the way over here this morning, saw a friend. He's living on the streets has a problem with drinking. He's had a problem for years, and, and we've tried to help him get out of the streets. We've, we've taken to rehabilitation centers. We, we've walked with him and taken him there, but he's left, and he still ends up on the street. And he was walking this morning at about 8 o'clock this morning. He had a six-pack of beer that he just bought, and you could tell he was wasted. And your heart breaks and you think, what does it take? How long can you live like that? And your heart breaks, especially for those that you love. When you see them just making destructive decisions and, and causing more harm, more harm. And it's like, what does it take? Well, it's going to take them weeping, mourning, wailing. It's going to take it. It's only going to change when they say, I don't want it anymore. And they're sick of it when that happens then the the light comes through and you can't force that to happen to anybody people don't like it when you tell them your life's a mess if they don't think it is it doesn't matter where they're at they could be on the street and you say your life's a mess well it's my life but you see some of you might be at that place where it's time to weep it's time to mourn. It's time to be broken. And if you do that, the Lord is the one who will lift you up because the reverse of what happens when you do mourn, when you do surrender, 
is what takes place in Psalm 30, verse 10. You turned my wailing into dancing. You removed my sackcloth and clothed me with joy that my heart may sing your praises and not be silent. Lord, my God, I will praise you forever. See, the great news and what I love about chapter 8 and Nehemiah is it is a holy moment. This is a holy moment. This is, this is sacred. That's why I asked you at the beginning, what do you think of when you think of holy, perfection, God? All these things were coming up. What is Nehemiah? He says, holiness leads to joy. That's not what I had in mind. Holiness, sacred, that's kind of like religious, somber, sad. Shh, this is holy moment here. Everyone quiet. But the picture I get from Nehemiah is, this is a holy moment. You know, just, I don't dance, so. <laughs> this is a holy moment because your eyes are open to the truth. And the truth will set you free. It will set you, it'll turn your mourning into dancing. It'll take your weeping and then turn it into laughing. Laughing. Lifing, that's a new word. Start my own language here, because this one doesn't have enough words. And you see, what God wants to do is make us aware of our condition so that we will recognize his love, mercy, goodness, and say, you know what, God? You do know what's right. You do know what's best. And what you desire for me is joy. God is not here to rain on your parade. God is not here to steal your fun. God created you to be the most creative, imaginative. You have no idea the potential that is within you to do the things that you could not imagine. I believe that within each one of us is the ability to change the world around us if we would just tap into what God has put within us. We are satisfied Way too easy. There is so much he has for us, more than you can imagine. And when you are aware that this is a holy moment, it becomes a reason to celebrate. Because the God who created everything has revealed truth to you. The one who made heaven and earth, the mountains, the streams, let your imagination go. The one who created all of those things has spoken truth to you so that your life could have direction, so your life could have fulfillment, so it could be whole. So stop Weeping. The universe is now on your side. That's reason to celebrate. When you connect with the living God, it changes everything. And so our desire this morning 
is that this moment would move from a place of recognition and mourning to a place of rejoicing and celebration, that the, the joy of the Lord would be our strength, that we'd realize if God is for us, who can be against us? That God has created us to live a life that is going to impact the world around us. And all we have to do is recognize it. All we have to do is see as he sees. And then we can be set free. Let's pray. God, I want so much for this too to be a holy moment. I want what happened there with Nehemiah and the thousands of people who were gathered, who, who heard the the law and heard the truth of your scripture and, and were broken and said, oh man, I, I've messed up. And Nehemiah steps in and he says, okay, don't stay here. This is a reason to celebrate that there is your whole life ahead of you, that there is no reason from this point forward you cannot live the life in the fullness of what God has designed and created you to be. There is nothing stopping you. God is for you. All we need to do is surrender to him. All we need to do is move forward in the direction that he has illuminated for each of us. All we need to do is take who he has made us to be to the fullness. All our gifts, all our talents, our creativity, our imaginations, the things that we have passions for, to take those things and and use them for his purposes, his glory, the things that will benefit those around us. And this can be a moment where we move from mourning to dancing, from weeping to laughing, where we allow the joy of the Lord to be our very strength, to lift us up out of condemnation, depression, Lift us out of that pit of self-pity and put our eyes up forward and say, no, this is where things change. This is where you are now free to live your life without the bondage of your mistakes. This is where you are now free to move forward and not be in condemnation for the wrong that you have done. This is now where you are set free. God, may we be set free this morning and may we move from this place of mourning to dancing. Set us free, I pray in Jesus' name, amen.